We hope everyone managed to enjoy some restful downtime over the holiday season. A Walk Among America will be taking a break this week following the Christmas period. However, in the meantime, for those of you who have yet to listen to They Walk Among Us, here is one of the latest episodes for you to check out. Keep safe, and thank you for listening. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 24 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listen a caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. November 1989, a 22-year-old single mother disappeared without a word, leaving her parents and young son distraught. Billingham is an industrial town in County Durham. Close to Middlesbrough, the town was formerly a small village, but demand for chemical manufacturing during the First World War led to the quaint area becoming the site of one of the largest synthetic ammonia plants in the UK. The ICI chemical works produce nitrates for the production of explosives. The population in the village doubled in the decade between 1921 and 1932 and has steadily increased since, with over 50,000 people calling Billingham home today. After the war, the plant continued to produce other materials needed, like plastics, aviation fuel and fertiliser. It was also the place where the skull of a young woman Tina Bell, was discovered in 1990, almost a year after she had vanished from Billingham. That year, the Northeast had almost doubled the number of murders as the previous year. One of those people murdered would prompt a change in centuries-old legislation. Anne Ming met her future husband Charlie at a local Chinese restaurant in 1962. Undeterred by the almost 20-year age gap, Anne was taken in by Charlie's stoic charm and, as she put it, exotic looks. Charlie was born to a Chinese father and an English mother a relationship which, even three decades later, turned heads in the tight-knit town of Billingham. Racial tensions were still high. Asian immigrants and their descendants faced prejudice on a daily basis. Most of Anne's family were not supportive of the biracial relationship, including her own mother. Anne was an only child and had been adopted by her parents. She said that they never treated her as if she was not theirs in every sense. There was a change of heart once Anne's mother met Charlie. She too was won over by his charming, gentle and caring demeanour. The couple married a year later, 
although the ceremony was only attended by around a dozen people. The young couple were happy in spite of the abuse they often faced. Charlie Ming worked as a mechanic, and Anne found employment as a nurse. They had three children, Gary the eldest, followed by Julie and then Angela. The couple raised their children in Acklam near Middlesbrough. Julie was born on February 22nd, 1967. She was reserved, but was able to hold her own in an argument. Julie had an infectious laugh and was fiercely loyal to those she loved. As a teenager in the 1980s, she was eccentric in her fashion choices, often having brightly coloured hair, outfits and high heels. She wanted to become a hairdresser and would dye her own naturally dark hair a range of bold colours. She had even convinced her father to let her perm his poker straight hair. Julie had a knack for getting her own way. She was someone people would make allowances for. When Julie's grandmother fell ill, the family moved to Billingham to help care for her. It was there that the then 16-year-old met Andrew Hogg at a local youth club. Andrew was laid back and had a way of placating any bad mood Julie was in. Julie's family thought he was the perfect match. Their complementary personalities balanced each other out, and the pair were married in 1985. The young couple, aged just 18 and 20 at the time of the ceremony, had their first dance to the song Ave Maria. Life was just beginning. Julie and Andrew moved into a three-bedroom council house on Grange Avenue in Billingham. It was not far from Julie's parents' home, which suited Julie because she would not go a day without calling in to see them. She was exceptionally close to her parents. Julie rang her mother at least twice a day, just to chat. Not long before Julie was due to give birth to their first baby, along with Andrew, she moved in with her mother and father. Becoming a parent is a daunting prospect, and the young mother-to-be wanted the familiarity of home and the help of relatives. Julie gave birth to a little boy. They named him Kevin. Everything seemed fine at first but it was too much too soon. Julie and Andrew's marriage broke down just a couple of years later. The pressure of being married and parents at such a young age put a strain on them both, and they decided to end their relationship. Julie had begun working at a local restaurant, Mr. Macaroni's, in 1987, delivering pizzas in the evenings, which meant they did not get to spend much time together. In 1989, Andrew was offered a job with a family member in London, and the couple separated amicably. Julie continued to deliver pizzas in the evenings, often working the night shift from 5pm to midnight. Anne and Charlie Ming were happy to have their grandson while Julie worked, and in November 1989 they did just that. When Anne Ming woke up in the middle of the night on November 16th, she had a strange feeling that something was wrong. It was just after 3am. She put the foreboding feeling down to a bad dream and tried to go back to sleep. Anne had to be up early the next morning 
She was taking care of her three-year-old grandson Kevin as his mother Julie had been working a late shift delivering pizzas. At 7.30am she dialed her daughter's number and as it rang out, and thought Julie must have slept in. She tried a few more times before relenting and bundling little Kevin into the car and driving the five-minute journey to Grange Avenue to wake up his mother. It was not yet bright outside. The long winter nights and dark mornings often made it harder for people to get out of the comfort of their own bed. The curtains were pulled shut, so Anne believed Julie must have slept through the phone ringing. Anne got out of the car and walked the short distance down the drive to the house. She knocked on the door, turning to look back at Kevin who was sitting happily in the car. She lifted open the letterbox and shouted for Julie to come to the door or they would be late. Anne was supposed to be driving Julie to Stockton Court to apply for legal separation from her husband, Andrew Hogg. The house was eerily silent. Anne expected Julie to rush to the door half asleep and full of apologies for sleeping in, but there was no response at all. A next-door neighbour, Kath Ward, told Anne that she had not seen or heard Julie come home the night before. She was usually dropped off from work after midnight. Something did not feel right. So Anne Ming got back into the car and drove to see her eldest child, Gary, at his place of work. Once Anne told her son that she thought Julie was missing... Gary explained that Julie had asked him to come over the night before, but he did not finish work on time. Seeing how frantic his mother was, Gary left work to try and find Julie, who had by this stage missed her appointment at the court. When they got back to 27 Grange Avenue, the neighbourhood was beginning to wake up. Anne, Gary and three-year-old Kevin walked to the back of the house to try and see inside. Peering through the window to the kitchen, all of the dishes had been cleaned and put away. It looked spotless. Gary decided to break a window to get into the property and told his mother he would unlock the door from the inside using the keys they presumed would be in the lock. After a few moments of silence, Gary told Anne that not only was Julie missing, but her keys were gone too. Julie's house key had a Playboy keyring attached to it, and it was nowhere to be found. Immediately, they noticed how unusually clean the house was. Julie was a busy single mother. It was not easy keeping the property clean with a toddler, and she was known to be unorganised. Instead of the usual clothes strewn around the floor or an unmade bed, the house was immaculately tidy. Anne checked with the police to see if there had been any accidents, thinking Julie may be injured somewhere, but there was nothing. Anne travelled to see her husband Charlie, who was then working, and together they went to the police station. Initially, officers told them that it was too soon to worry and that Julie was probably sleeping off a few drinks at a friend's house. They suggested that maybe she had changed her mind about the separation or even decided to leave Billingham and start a new life without her son. The Mings then went to Julie's place of work, Mr Macaroni's, and asked the workers who had dropped Julie home. No one said a word. The tension and worry was palpable inside the fast food restaurant. Charlie and Gary ended up in a heated confrontation with the employees and the police were called. The father and son were arrested and detained overnight. 
Later, the workers told the Mings that Julie had been dropped off at home around 1.25am and the man she was with had seen her go inside. Andrew, Julie's estranged husband, was living and working in London, having moved there about a month prior. He had no idea where Julie had gone. The police were still dismissive, saying that Julie was a grown woman who was about to go through a divorce, a textbook case of a woman who had run away to start a new life. But Julie's family did not believe that she would ever leave her son. After persistent calls and visits from a worried mother, Cleveland police agreed to send a team of forensic officers to Julie's house on November 20th. A team of five specialists entered the three-bedroom property to begin a meticulous technical examination of the location where the missing 22-year-old was last seen. Carting their equipment into the address to conduct the inspection, Anne was worried about what they may find. She just hoped Julie would come home soon. Two days into the search, Anne and her other daughter Angela were asked to come to the house to see if anything was missing. Nothing was gone apart from Julie and the clothes she had last been seen wearing. A black skirt and a peach-coloured blouse. Seeing Julie's makeup bag, her mother was convinced that Julie had not just upped and left. She was the type of girl who would not leave the house without putting on some makeup. After five days of combing the property for some indication of Julie Hogg's whereabouts, the officers changed the locks and installed an alarm on the property. If anyone tried to get in using the missing keys, the police would be alerted immediately. Detective Inspector Jeff Lee, who was heading the missing person's inquiry, told Dan after the search he could guarantee nothing untoward had happened to Julie inside the house. Specialists had found no evidence of foul play and nothing to suggest she had been the victim of a crime. Refocusing their efforts, police divers searched local waterways and canvassed the surrounding area. The day after, police left the house on Grange Avenue. The alarm was said to have malfunctioned. When police went to inspect the property, they saw that someone had indeed broken in and taken a VHS player, leaving the television in the kitchen. The police questioned a number of people who knew Julie, but it was as if she had simply vanished. Andrew Hogg came back from London to be close to his young son, Kevin. The little boy was desperate for his mother to come home and cried every night before bed. As the case was still a missing persons inquiry, the family were asked to appeal on local media outlets and Time Tees TV. The detective in charge told Julie's mother that if her daughter was going to make contact, it would most likely be on Anne's birthday, December 22nd. Under the advice of the police, Anne and Charlie Ming told their friends and family not to call, to keep the phone line clear. They sat staring at the phone from dusk until dawn, but the phone never rang. Christmas came and went, with an open presence for Julie left under the tree. 
police continued to appeal for information about Julie's whereabouts in the new year. The Cleveland Constabulary issued Julie's national health number in case she went to a hospital or GP elsewhere for treatment. By the end of January, the police told the family they were finished with the house on Grange Avenue and gave the new key to Andrew Hogg. Dozens of officers had been to the property on different occasions over the past six weeks, but their efforts were fruitless. Andrew planned to move into the house with Kevin to try and get some normality and structure back into their lives and helped Andrew to clear some of Julie's belongings, painful reminders they wanted Kevin to avoid when he moved into the house. As they tidied up her colourful clothes into bags, they could not help but think Julie would never have left without taking them. The home had been empty for months and was bitterly cold, so they turned on the central heating which had been installed just a few days earlier. As the house began to warm up, Andrew got to work. Over the next few days, he cleaned the property, scrubbing the fingerprint dust away, tidying the things forensic officers had gone through, removing any trace of Julie and the search to find her. While he was preparing the house, Andrew noticed a horrible smell in the bathroom and rang Anne for some advice. Anne told him it was probably the toilets that had been sitting stagnant for weeks. She said to clean them, but no amount of bleach shifted the smell that lingered throughout the address. The following day, Anne called over to the property with her grandson, Kevin. She asked Andrew if he had gotten rid of the smell, and when he said no, she decided to sort it out herself. She left Andrew and Kevin in the kitchen and began walking up the stairs. Before she reached the top, the smell hit her. Having worked as a nurse in operating theatres for the best part of 20 years, Anne recognised the foul stench. It was decomposing flesh. She tried to silence the thought as it came into her head. The forensic officers had searched the house for almost a week and the lead detective had guaranteed them that Julie had come to no harm inside the house. When Anne reached the bathroom, she leaned over the bath to see if the smell was coming from the tile fixative on the stripped walls. As she did, her knee pushed the bath panel and the smell grew overwhelming as a gap opened between the bath and the panel. Anne instinctively kneeled down and pulled the panel back to look behind it. She saw something that instantly sent her reeling back and caused her to retch. It was a body wrapped in a blanket. She was hysterical and screamed out for Andrew, saying, She's under the bath. In a state of shock and disbelief, Andrew ran up the stairs and unscrewed the bath panel. He saw something wrapped in a blanket, then a forearm. Seeing this made him recoil. Anne ran from the house screaming to Julie's next-door neighbour, Kath Ward, about what she had found. The quiet street began to fill up with police cars and flashing lights, but the sirens could not drown out the cries from Anne Ming and her three-year-old grandson, who had no idea what was going on. When detectives arrived in the garden, Anne Ming was furious. She felt as though they had dismissed her from the start, and did not search the house properly. 
Julie's body had been at the address all along. Anne knew she had to get Kevin out of there, but she did not want to leave her daughter, who had been alone in the house for months. Julie's small frame had been wedged beneath the bathtub, then the panel was screwed back on. The body was bent backwards into a U-shape around the fittings. The remains were in an advanced state of decomposition. The investigation was escalated to a murder inquiry. Once officers began inspecting the house again, they discovered Julie's diary, a cash card and watch in the loft. The forensic team had told Charlie Ming they searched the loft the week after she went missing. As the murder squad began to probe deeper into Julie's personal life, they discovered that she had been in a casual relationship with her next-door neighbour, Mark Ward. When investigators went to see where Ward was on the night Julie went missing, it was discovered that he had been out at an event at Billingham Rugby Club. Ward and his friends, who were known as the Crazy Gang, had been at a stripper night hosted at the club. One of the members of the Crazy Gang, and the most notorious for violence, was a man named Billy Dunlop. Dunlop was a labourer, with a mop of brown hair and a stocky build. On the night in question, Dunlop had been drunk and had accosted one of the dancers. He then pulled down his trousers in front of her. When he was removed from the premises, he headbutted the door, injuring his eyebrow. Then Dunlop beat a doorman until he was unconscious. Covered in his own blood and that of the man he just attacked, he then went to the hospital for treatment. He said after that he went straight home, got into bed and went to sleep. Within days, both Mark Ward and Billy Dunlop were arrested in connection with the death of Julie Hogg and taken to separate police stations. At Hartlepool Station, officers questioned Ward about his relationship with Julie and his whereabouts on the night she vanished. At the same time, officers at another station asked Dunlop the same questions. Later speaking with the Gazette, Superintendent Derek Dobson said that the police only had a 36-hour hold on the suspects before they had to release them. In this time, they had obtained warrants for their homes. Dunlop had been lodging with a friend on Rydal Avenue, a few streets from Julie's house. When the police searched the property, they found something under the floorboards. It was a set of keys. They were Julie's missing house keys. Whoever put them there went to considerable efforts to hide them covering the area with bricks. Further forensic evidence linked Dunlop to the crime. Green fibres from the rugby shirt he was seen wearing that night were discovered on the blanket Julie was wrapped in, along with his DNA in seminal stains, and hairs from his head were also found on the blanket. Although the missing person's inquiry had been botched, the police assured the Mings that they had enough evidence to secure a conviction. William Billy Dunlop was charged with the murder of Julie Hogg on February 13, 1990. When he was read the charge, he collapsed. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 26-year-old Billy Dunlop had a long history of violence. He was known in Billingham as someone who had a string of convictions starting in his teenage years. At one hearing, his father would tell the court that he had raised his son to box and felt responsible for the way Billy Dunlop had turned out. Even as a father of two small children, Dunlop continued to use violence as a means to get what he wanted. It emerged that Julie had slept with Dunlop on one occasion, but had told her friends she did not fancy him and would not do it again. Dunlop was staying a few streets away after a temporary breakup with the mother of his children and had since moved back in with her by the time of his arrest. The police theorised that he had gone to Julie's house after being released from hospital still full of rage and fueled by alcohol. And she refused his advances. Dunlop snapped and killed her, hiding her body in haste before cleaning the scene and taking the keys with him so he could move the body at a later stage. Detectives believed that he did not expect the Mings to notice something was wrong so quickly and waited until the forensic officers had left before going back to the house. When the alarm was triggered at the police station, officers went to the property and found a window open. A television was left nearby. Officers assumed Dunlop went to check the body was still there before staging a burglary. After waiting months to find Julie, the Mings had to wait another ten weeks before they could lay their daughter to rest. Her body had now become evidence in the murder investigation, and due to the length of time it took for her remains to be discovered, tests were needed to try and pinpoint her exact cause of death. Julie Hogg's funeral was held on April 21st, 1990, at St Mary's Church in Aquam. It was the church she had been baptised at, in the town she grew up in. The family spent time in the funeral home, each saying their goodbyes before filing out of the room. Charlie Ming was the last to leave, and before he did, he promised his daughter that he would get the bastard who killed her. Anne Ming later said in her book, For the Love of Julie, that she could hear the song Ave Maria floating out of the church and pictured her daughter on her wedding day with her whole life ahead of her. Instead, she was walking behind the wooden box that contained what had happened to her dreams. An inquest held in October of that year revealed the horrific details of Julie Hogg's death. In the pathologist's report, he wrote, There was present about the body only a single unequivocal injury. This consisted of a huge vertically running laceration, running the whole length of the vagina posteriorly and on the left. The tear ended at the peritoneal cavity. It represents the result of some extreme form of violence, such as the violent insertion of a foreign body into the vagina resulting in gross distension of the organ and subsequent tearing. Insertion of a fist or foot is less likely. 
lesion could not have been caused by normal sexual intercourse and must be taken to be the result of a deliberate act of violence, perhaps even violation or defilement. It is possible that the injury occurred in life. If so, it would cause pain, shock and heavy bleeding. It is also only just possible that death could ensue acutely. It is more likely that the injury occurred after death, however as an act of mutilation. The autopsy findings in this case have been to a large extent obscured by the quite advanced post-mortem changes. There was certainly no evidence of any natural disease to cause or accelerate death, and the circumstances and the presence of a violent sexual injury indicate that death must have been from other than natural causes. There was no evidence of a violent beating and there were no broken bones. Given the negative findings and the general nature of the case, it is likely that death has been due to some form of asphyxia, say strangulation or suffocation, and of course the subtle signs of these would easily be obscured by putrefactive change. Billy Dunlop was brought to trial at Newcastle Crown Court in May 1991 to face the murder charge. Mr Justice Thomas oversaw the proceedings as the prosecution and the defence argued the alleged facts of the case. Julie Hogg's personal life was laid bare to those on the jury and the spectators in the gallery. Every detail of her private and sex life was scrutinised and later published in the media. The officer who had searched the loft during the initial missing persons investigation testified that he had stood upon a banister and had a quick look around with a lit matchstick to see if there was a body. He failed to spot Julie's belongings strewn around the entrance. The police who responded when the alarm alerted them to an intrusion at the house testified that there was no sign of forced entry. They radioed for a dog handler to assist. The dog became agitated in the bathroom, but did not bark as it was not trained to alert upon the discovery of human remains, only the living. The prosecution believed that Billy Dunlop had stayed in the house for some time after murdering Julie, tidying and disposing of evidence. She had been found naked, and her clothes were never recovered. Detectives believe Dunlop may have been in the house when An Ming first arrived on the morning of November 16, 1989 and left with the keys intending to return at a later stage to dispose of the body. One theory was that he planned to dissolve Julie's remains in acid. Tina Bell, whose partial skeletal remains were discovered at the ICI chemical plant in 1990, had evidence of corrosion on the bones. Billy Dunlop was one of the last people to be seen with her, but he was never charged in relation to the crime. Gary Whitburn for the prosecution did not hold back when describing Julie to the jury. He said she was a, quote, woman of considerable sexual appetite and was promiscuous by any standard. The defence attorney Franz Muller QC had labelled Julie a nymphomaniac and alleged she had slept with three men in the 12 hours prior to her death. These rumours were laid out as if it was a justifiable reason why Julie had been killed and mutilated. Muller also told the court his client, the defendant, had a threesome with Julie and another man, Mark Ward, a few weeks before her death. The barrister claimed that it was in fact Mark Ward who had killed Julie in a sex act gone wrong. He said that Ward had won a raffle at the Billingham Rugby Club event that night and had said he was going to try it on with Julie Hogg. 
Muller alleged that Ward was frustrated and incensed after failing to have sex with one of the dancers at the party. After watching hardcore pornographic videos, he went to Julie's house and attempted to copy the acts he saw in the video. It was the defence counsel's belief that Julie died during this time. Mark Ward had been arrested at the same time as Billy Dunlop. He was interviewed almost a dozen times and had lied about Dunlop's whereabouts on the night of the murder. When he was questioned about this in court, Ward said, I did not want to grass on Billy. If he hadn't done it, I did not want to say that he had. Plumbers had been to the house four days before the body was discovered, and the defence counsel said that Ward knew this, as residents on the whole street were having new heating installed, and he moved Julie's body so it would not be found. Andrew Hogg, Julie's estranged husband, testified about finding her body. He said, I started taking the screws out of the panel. When I pulled it up, I noticed a white blanket. I could smell the smell, and I saw part of a forearm hanging loose. The lengthy trial seemed too much for some jurors who were thought to have fallen asleep during elements of the testimony. Pathologist Dr James Sunter gave evidence on the fifth day of the trial. Dr Sunter testified that Julie had sustained a four-inch internal tear to her genitals, which was likely inflicted after her death as an act of mutilation. The pathologist believed the body had been under the bath for a considerable amount of time and was unlikely to have been moved prior to discovery. Due to the advanced state of decomposition present on the remains, it was not possible to determine an exact cause of death, but asphyxiation due to strangulation was one possibility. Forensic analyst Sarah Gray had examined the evidence found on the blanket Julie's body had been wrapped in. On it there were nine green fibres that matched the green stripe on the Billingham rugby shirt Dunlop had been wearing. There was also semen found, which was concluded to have only come from Dunlop and none of the other suspects. Once the Crown finished presenting their case, Billy Dunlop testified in his own defence. He admitted to having a threesome with Julie Hogg and Mark Ward, but said she refused to sleep with him again when he went to her house alone a few days later. At this point, he had threatened to punch her if she told anyone she had rejected him. When he saw how frightened she was, Dunlop said that he had apologised and told her he didn't mean it before leaving. Dunlop denied being involved in Julie's murder, saying, I didn't do it. I wouldn't. She was a lovely girl. Really quiet. The defendant gave a detailed and convincing account of his actions on November 16, 1989, saying that he remembered pulling his trousers down at the rugby club and getting into a fight. He said he then travelled to the hospital for stitches and went home. The owner of the house he was staying in, Don Patton, testified that Dunlop was not in bed at 4am but he did see him asleep in the same clothes as the night before at 8.30am. Dunlop claimed to have been extremely intoxicated. However, the doctor who had treated him in the emergency department stated he was not that drunk. The clinician said, If he had been blind drunk, I wouldn't have administered any anaesthetic. 
it was Billy Dunlop's belief that he was being set up. That someone had planted Julie's keys in the house he was staying in, and even went to the trouble of placing his fingerprints on the keyring. It was difficult to explain how someone could do that since they were not his keys. The evidence implicating Dunlop was strong, and the prosecution believed he would be convicted. After 14 hours of deliberations, the jury were brought back into the courtroom. When asked for their verdict, it was revealed they had not elected a foreman. No one explained to them they needed to. They could not reach a majority verdict, so the judge had to order a retrial. Jurors were unpersuaded because the pathologist could not find an exact cause of death. If the initial search of the house had been thorough, Julie's body would not have been in the condition it was, which rendered a proper post-mortem impossible. Dunlop was remanded into custody until October when a second trial would begin. In the meantime, life for the Mings was at a standstill. Andrew Hogg had decided not to tell his son the truth about Julie's death, instead telling Kevin that she had slipped in the bath and went to heaven. Charlie Ming was so distressed after the trial collapsed that he was admitted to a psychiatric hospital for treatment. The circumstances of their daughter's murder and the degrading of her character in court like she was on trial had been incredibly challenging for Anne and Charlie Ming. Julie's body lay alone in the house for months. The police had assured her parents that she had come to no harm inside and almost convinced them that she had run off to start a new life. Anne and Charlie Ming lodged a complaint with the Cleveland police after Julie's remains were found citing the negligent searches that were carried out and the way they had been treated during the missing persons inquiry. The Director of Public Prosecutions decided to retry Billy Dunlop in October 1991. Presiding Judge Mr Justice Ognall was known for overseeing notorious trials including that of Yorkshire Ripper Peter Sutcliffe. The proceedings were much the same as they had been months earlier, two weeks of evidence before the jury was sent to deliberate. This time the judge only allowed the jury five hours before they were called in to give their verdict. For the second time, a jury could not reach a majority verdict. Billy Dunlop was acquitted of murder and released following 20 months in custody. Anne Ming was inconsolable. She collapsed in grief and had to be helped from the court. The assurances they had been given about the evidence being solid enough to secure a conviction had come to nothing. Billy Dunlop's family told the media that they were planning a night out in celebration. Dunlop himself later spoke on television about how he had been set up and wanted compensation. Dunlop never stopped talking, boasting in pubs in Billingham about how he had pulled off the perfect murder and got away with killing Julie Hogg. When word reached the Mings, they called the police and told them Dunlop had admitted it 
officers were aware of what he had been saying, but told Anne that there was nothing they could do, as he had been acquitted. A law that was imposed eight centuries earlier meant that no one who had been acquitted of a crime could be tried again. The double jeopardy law. Dunlop was, in his own mind and in the eyes of the law, untouchable. Anne and Charlie went to speak with their local MP, Frank Cook. They asked him to help them get justice and he agreed. Billy Dunlop was still a free man, and this terrified the Mings. In 1993, the Cleveland police agreed to pay £10,000 in negligence damages to Anne Ming for their failure to find Julie's body in the house. Once Anne lodged a complaint in the days following the grim discovery, a police probe was launched. The internal investigation found that the reason they had failed to discover Julie's remains beneath the bath was due to a lack of communication between the forensic officers. Each believed that someone else on the team had searched the area. Former Detective Superintendent Derek Dobson later said to Teesside Live reporter Simon Howarth, Obviously we didn't do our job properly not finding Julie's body and it certainly hampered our investigation and case because we were unable to get a proper cause of death because the body had been laid there for so long. One of the main aspects of the murder case in court is a cause of death. We were unable to satisfy anybody as to how Julie died. The probability was suffocation or strangulation, but we weren't able to provide that conclusively. If we had had that... If she had been found earlier, it is highly probable that there would have been a cause of death. There may well have been other evidence that would have been retrieved at the time. Who knows what difference it would have made. The Cleveland police came under fire again in 1995, when it emerged they had made mistakes when investigating the murder of three-year-old Rosie Palmer. They had interviewed her killer, Sean Anthony Armstrong, three times. They'd even searched his flat, including the cupboard where the little girl was later found. Billy Dunlop's long-term partner, Jane, had been too afraid to leave him throughout the murder investigation and trials, although she told Anne Ming she had no doubt her partner was capable. She filed a police report that alleged Dunlop had tried to strangle her and threatened to kill her like Julie. Jane was moved to a safe house in Manchester with her children for protection, but Dunlop was not ready to let her go. Using a phone book, he went through page after page until he discovered the number Jane had used to contact someone in Billingham. He then went to find the address. So confident in his actions, he even stopped at the police station to ask directions to the property. He was arrested and charged with threatening to kill Jane and sentenced to a short term in custody. Two years later, in 1997, Billy Dunlop had moved on and was seeing another woman named Donna Williams. When the relationship ended and he discovered she had found someone else, Dunlop went to her home. He walked in the door without disturbing Sean Fairweather, who was sitting on a chair. Dunlop had a baseball bat in his hand and swung it with such force towards Fairweather's head that he knocked him unconscious. He continued to beat the man until they were no longer recognisable. Fairweather's facial muscles detached from his now shattered skull. Dunlop then moved towards Donna Williams, who at this time was pregnant. He picked up a carving fork and stabbed her, penetrating her lung and causing it to collapse. 
Luckily, Donna's brother and his friends interrupted the attack, and both of the victims miraculously survived despite receiving catastrophic injuries. Billy Dunlop was arrested and charged with attempted murder. Anne and Charlie Ming were saddened that Dunlop had been free to cause such harm, but were thankful that he would finally be convicted of something. They continued to campaign for justice for Julie, and they were not the only parents fighting for their child and a change to the law. Four years earlier, Stephen Lawrence was killed in a racially motivated, unprovoked attack in southeast London. The black teenager was waiting at a bus stop with friends when he was fatally assaulted by a gang of males. Five men were suspected, but none were convicted of the brutal crime. Stephen's parents, Doreen and Neville Lawrence, pursued a private prosecution against three of the accused. In 1996, the case was thrown out by the presiding judge, and all three were acquitted. The double jeopardy law meant they could not stand trial again. A public inquiry was held into the murder and the investigation, and the resulting McPherson report was published in 1999. It highlighted institutional racism and other gross failings within the police force. It made recommendations about the handling of future cases. Billy Dunlop pleaded guilty to two counts of assault causing grievous bodily harm in relation to the attack on Donna Williams and Sean Fairweather. He was sentenced to seven years in prison in 1998 and the court accepted his plea to a lesser charge. While incarcerated, Dunlop began to disclose more details about his involvement in Julie Hogg's murder that happened a decade earlier. In a letter to his ex-girlfriend Donna, he wrote, It's common knowledge now that I've admitted it, but there's nothing that can be done about it, as I've been cleared already. Dunlop befriended a female prison officer, and she agreed to record their conversation for the police. In over 60 hours of audio tapes, Dunlop freely admitted to murdering Julie Hogg in her home on November 16, 1989. He also wrote to a nurse who had worked at the psychiatric hospital where he was previously treated, clearly wanting to unburden himself. Dunlop wrote in the letter, I have done a lot of soul-searching since I came to Moreland and decided to come clean about the murder I was accused of and cleared of in 1991. I have admitted my guilt of this now. I hope you understand that I couldn't tell you or anyone else in this hospital at home house of this because I hadn't been sentenced for what I am now doing my sentence on, and also hadn't admitted to myself that this was my major problem in coping with my life. I owe it to my children and myself to get my head sorted out. Dunlop wrote a statement for a child custody hearing and is on record stating, I have admitted that I was responsible for the death of Julie Hogg. I stood trial at Newcastle Crown Court for her murder and was acquitted. I denied the offence and I accept that I lied. Despite his numerous admissions to countless people, due to the double jeopardy law, Billy Dunlop could not be retried for the murder of Julie Hogg. He seemed comfortable confessing to a murder that he got away with, and Dunlop felt unburdened and untouchable. But for how long? This is the end of episode 24. 
to hear more on the murder of Julie Hogg and the confession of Billy Dunlop, please listen to Season 6, Episode 25 of They Walk Among Us. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com.